0: Throughout this series, we have attempted to encourage you as we enter into this period of transition. Now, Transition is an interesting word, isn't it? And perhaps it is a bit overused. In fact, over the last few months, I've seen as I've gone to various websites looking at different churches, um, wanting to get different pieces of information, I often see that word transition being used for a lot of churches. Uh, A dear friend of mine even commented on how tired he is of that word. Because in his opinion, and I think he's right, all of life is transition. Today is going to be different than tomorrow, and today is different from yesterday. When we talk of transition, what we're really talking about is change. And many of us hate change. I know I I am not a big fan of it. Change scares us. Think about it. We hate the idea of getting older because we know in the long run what it means. We tend to look longingly back to a period of life and consider it as the good old days, wishing that life was like that once again. And even those of us who have been here at Lanesville for a long time may look back at a period in the history of this church and think about it as the glory days and wishing that we could be back there. Now certainly, but wishing things that are as they once were is not only not helpful, it can also be harmful for the life and ministry of a church. Certainly we can learn from the past, and we should, but we can't live in the past. God has us here now in this place. And we're not here by chance, we're not here by accident, but we are here by his sovereign call and that is exciting. I know we're facing some big changes and we need to make some hard decisions but God will see us through those things just as he has so many times before and why because this is his church and God is committed to his church. Throughout this sermon series we've been attempting to lay out a foundation for each step in this process of transition. We are the church. We are a family that God has uniquely joined together. We share the same bloodline, the bloodline of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as as with any family, we want to constantly be renewed individually and corporately. Renewal equals growth. We have a building, as we've discussed, that needs to be addressed. And we're here in this place because of change decisions that we made together to put more emphasis on ministry and less on the physical structure. But now is the time that we need to fix this building, not as a historical marker, but a, as a useful tool for the edification of the body of Christ and the ministry of the gospel for years to come. We wanna make this place user friendly, if you will. For months the Missions Committee along with the Board of Elders have been working on retooling our global missions focus so that we have a road map, more or less, that is clear to follow for the coming generations. For long, as long as I have been in this church, there's always been a desire to raise up missionaries from within. For those of us who are really old, we remember Jim and Louise Rotholtz. In fact, there's a photograph of them in an old church directory out on the shelf when we are laying hands on them to send them off as missionaries. We want to have a mechanism in place to make that a continuing, uh, a continuing process for this church. And we also have been reshaping the church as we are about to formally say goodbye to our pastor-teacher of 22 years. While well, the search committee is still in the early stages of this process, we are praying and working through it. Now, such the thing is not fun, but it's very necessary. And it's through seasons like this that help us to remember that we are in this together for the Lord's renown. This morning, I've entitled this sermon, The Capstone for Renewal. And we are ending this sermon pretty much where we began five weeks ago. However, while the focus five weeks ago was on us individually, today we're going to focus on us corporately. And one of the things that has struck me so much in this past year, more than any other year, is that we are, as individual Christians, find our complete identity within the context of the body of Christ. That's why we have to be in fellowship. That's why we've got to be here. And interestingly enough, this is a major theme in 1 Peter. Would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10? And I'll be reading from the NIV. As you come to him the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says see I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. Let us pray. So Heavenly Father, as we consider this text this morning, we ask your Holy Spirit to, to help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. We thank you for the message of Peter, that Peter has for us, that you've given to us through him. And just for this wonderful image of, of each of us being living stones and how we form together uh, the temple, uh, your church. We just ask, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the churches to whom Peter is writing were in Northwest Asia Minor and actually a region of about 129,000 square miles so it's a a pretty big area. Um, And this particular church was experiencing discrimination which arose from the Christians unwillingness to take part in a lot of of, of the society that they had been used to before they were believers. Peter stresses throughout the letter where our true citizenship lies. While these folks may have been rejected by society, they will never be rejected by God. And Peter is concerned also for the witness of the church and reminds them that from which they've been saved, lest they are tempted to behave as they once did before they knew Christ. So the church is facing all sorts of challenges, and Peter wishes to encourage them. He begins by using terms that are familial, demonstrating the unique relationship we share as the church. We are a family, and in part, this is why things get messy. We sometimes have different ideas on how we should function as family. And while we all proclaim Christ as Lord, we are different, at different points in our spiritual pilgrimages. And this is especially why we need each other. We get so distracted and forget to major on the majors, and so we need to be encouraged by one another to focus on the things that are most important to our Lord and we're different from the world in which we live and this is something of course we know very well one writer has said in the Western world our tendency is to look at on new birth and Christ as an individual affair rather than viewing new birth as something that places us in a new family with a new father and new brothers and sisters But Peter as he focuses on this family imagery shifts gears he moves from the family imagery to temple imagery One of John Stott's last books focused on the vital necessity of the church, and he was deeply concerned of the lack of commitment in the West among Christians to the church. Somehow, Christianity had become an individualized faith, and this deeply concerned him. So this is why Peter is stressing so much through this text, the sense of unity that we have as the body of Christ. We can't do it alone. In verse 4, Peter changes his focus so that it's riveted upon Christ and then moves into our relationship as the church with our Lord. The focus is on Christ as our model and on the church and its ministry that stems from our calling to be holy. And Peter uses the imagery of the stone to depict Christ's ministry to the church. But I'd like you to notice the structure of the text. It's kind of funky the way he does this. In verses 3 and 4, he starts off by, We've tasted and know the Lord is good, so we come to him, the living stone. And then in verse 5, we are then modeled on the living stone and are are to be like him. Then 6 through 8, he kind of then takes time from the Old Testament to show how Christ was foreseen or foreshadowed to be this living stone, the stone, the cornerstone. And then in verse 9, he gets back to where he began, he gets back to us, and the application of what it means for us who are are the church of God. So what I'd like to do is first look at the three Old Testament passages, and then we'll come back to verse 5, and then we'll jump ahead to 9 through 10. There's probably a better way to structure this, but that's what we're going to do. So in our text, Peter quotes three Old Testament passages that use stone imagery. And by quoting these passages, he draws a distinct contrast between those who accept Jesus and those who reject him. He shows that the contrast was foretold in the Old Testament, and and this should not come as a surprise for Christians. The first passage that Peter quotes is in verse 6 of our text. And Peter says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And well, this passage is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And in this passage, God is railing against the leaders of Jerusalem who have ignored God and think that they are safe from trouble because, they've made, uh, because of their political alliances. They speak as though they have made a treaty with death so that the lethal waters of judgment can never sweep over them. In other words, they're going to do their own thing, and that's okay. That's what they think. And so God speaks out against them from the prophet. He declares them to them that their pride is not going to be a refuge. Their covenant with death is no security. God then likens himself to a builder who begins a new building in Zion. And as Israel's architect, he appoints and approves the cornerstone which he's about to lay. Anyone who trusts in this solid foundation will be like a builder whose edifice stands firmly. And he'll not suffer the humiliation of seeing his building fall into ruin. And we all know, I think, from previous sermons, that the cornerstone was the foundation stone that had to be set in place first before a building was built. It had to be perfectly square and it had to be true. It had to be set in exactly the right place because it was the measure by which the building was going to be built. The cornerstone was considered precious, not because of it was decorated in ornaments but because it was unblemished, it it had to be chosen and crafted perfectly in order to accomplish the task that was set before it. A good foundation is vital vital to the life of the building. Years ago, in the Dominican Republic, it was our second mission trip there, we were assigned a task to to pick up where another group had left off in building this enormous building, three classrooms, And what this group had done is they had built the foundation, dug the foundation, poured it, laid the first few courses of blocks and had tied three walls into an existing perimeter wall for the school. We got there, we began going up, and I remember this like yesterday. There in the far corner, a much younger Zach Smith, is scratching his head and going like this all along the course of the wall. And I'm looking at him, I'm wondering what is he doing? And as I follow his eye, I see the wall is perfectly level, perfectly level, and then you get back to where he's standing, it's a whole step up. In other words, somehow it had become an M.C. Escher building. It was an optical illusion. It looked perfectly level. It was perfectly level, but it ended up as a step up. And We were basing our work on what others had started. And Unfortunately, that building came down in a hurricane a few years later just because it hadn't been set right, anchored right. So foundation is vital for the life of the building. The second Old Testament passage that Peter quotes is from Psalm 118, verse 22. And Peter places this in verse 7 of our text. Now, He knew this passage very well. He quoted it when he was called before the Sanhedrin with John after healing the man who had been born lame. And Peter says in Acts chapter four, "It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, and has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men, given to men, by which we must be saved." And so this is Peter, not same Sanhedrin that Jesus faced, who's telling them this man's healed in the name of Christ. And so Peter's quotation to the Sanhedrin condemned them but also told them that God had vindicated him whom the Jews had crucified and exalted him to headship over the new Israel. Not the kind of stuff these Jewish leaders would want to hear. Jesus also quoted Psalm 118 about himself in Matthew 21, 42 through 43 when he spoke to the leaders of Israel about a parable that spoke of judgment that that would come upon those who kill the Son of God. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. In their rejection of Christ, the builders, in spite of themselves, served to put God's stone in place, and in so doing, it crushed them. But it's not only the leaders of Israel who rejected Christ. Verse 4 reminds us that he has been rejected by men. The severity of God's judgment falls upon all who reject Christ, as Jesus is the measure by which all human beings will be measured. And then the final Old Testament passage Peter quotes in our text is found in verse 8 and comes from Isaiah 8, 14, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Isaiah, this is Isaiah's first major prophecy in his ministry. And he's given this prophecy to Ahaz. Ahaz is worried about some enemies in the north, and he's terrified. And instead of trusting God, which is what Isaiah tells him to do, he makes a pact with an even greater enemy, the Assyrians. And as a result, the next four or five chapters are really an indictment upon Ahaz, that things that he will not get to see because of his unwillingness to trust God. And so Ahaz, in his lack of faith, stumbles. And, the, and God, as a result, God judges Ahaz and the people of Judah. Either the Lord is the cornerstone of our faith, or he is the rock over which we stumble, because nothing daunts him. Therefore, it is the faith of the individual that determines whether or not Christ has a vital or fatal effect upon them. And then and then we come to verse 5. And this is just a marvelous picture that Peter is painting for us. So we have this imagery of who Jesus is as the cornerstone, the capstone, which, by the way, isn't quite the right word in, what, in its meaning, but we don't really care about that right now. But it has to do with the, probably the head of the corner at the top of a building. Not really sure. But nonetheless, Jesus is the beginning and the end, if you will. And so we come to the spiritual house. As Christ is the cornerstone of God's temple, so are we stones in that temple. As the scriptures say, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? We are modeled on the living stone, our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool, thinking about that? This imagery carries over to us. Upon Christ, the chief cornerstone, we are are built into a spiritual house. This isn't just a social club. This isn't just a haphazard thing. God's built us together, here, now, for a purpose. We are living stones and grow into the temple of our Lord, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, something that also Peter says, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. In the Old Testament, remember when Israel is is, is going through in the Exodus, is traveling in the wilderness, God orders them and gives them directions to build a tabernacle. What did the tabernacle represent? It represented God in their midst. In the midst of the wilderness, God is in their midst. That tabernacle then becomes the temple when they get to Jerusalem later on. And it's a more permanent model of God in their midst. When the word became flesh, the symbol of the temple became a reality. The Lord God of glory came to dwell with us. The true temple is Christ's body, and we are joined to Jesus as living stones are joined to the cornerstone. And in this wonderful way, the church becomes the true house of God. Peter's language is corporate here, not individual. The church is not made up of just one stone, but many, and we are in need of the support from which we receive from our fellow stones; thus, all are crucial to the body of Christ. Or, in the case of Peter's imagery, the temple of Christ. Let me take you back to the Dominican Republic again. Another building, another problem. We we're built, This is our second trip. We're building a house, and for a youth pastor, and it, we had to carry tons and tons of blocks down a long track. And on the last day, we're behind schedule. And Greg Wistrells were members of our church, moved to um, Rhode Island. He was trying to build this wall and connect it to two other walls. And Felix, who was the architect and the chief builder for Youth for Christ, would come in and knock it down every time. And Greg couldn't figure this out. And finally, Felix, who tries to explain and give him instructions in Spanish, which he did not understand, finally does this. He takes chalk and he numbers each block how he wants it laid. Greg then follows the instructions, laying each block according to the, its numerical, numerical value, if, if you will. And lo and behold, it works. It all connects perfectly. And Greg just stands back and is blown away by that. But isn't that kind of cool, thinking that imagery, that God is the architect, like Felix was in that case, piecing us and placing us right where we need to be, right at the right time. And it all, it all links together. That's how the church is to work. The image of living stones being built into a spiritual house whose cornerstone is Christ speaks of the unity, the significance, and the purpose of all believers. These are concepts that are essential for Christian self-understanding. The primary attribute of a temple in the first century thought was its holiness. Just as God's presence sanctified the temple of Jerusalem, so the Holy Spirit sanctifies the church, setting it apart as God's own. The unity of the temple is derived from God's presence, the one cornerstone, and the unity of purpose. There is one single temple into which all believers are built. The imagery of living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and the purpose of each individual Christian cannot be realized apart from the community of believers. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others, not only in one's generation, but also by being united with believers of every generation who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. The structure will be completed only when the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of, of Christ is revealed in all its glory. There's a famous story from Sparta. A Spartan king brings in a neighboring king. I don't know what the guy's name was. And he brags about the walls of Sparta, and this guy looks around, he doesn't see any walls. (laughs) He sees nothing. The city's wide open. And so he says to the king of Sparta, where are these walls about which you boast so much? His host pointed at his army of magnificent troops. These, he said, are the walls of Sparta. Every man is a brick. I like that. Not only is Jesus the cornerstone upon which all will be measured, he's also the master builder, as Jesus places each stone perfectly where it needs to be. And now we jump to verse 9, and we find here the full flavor of who we are. Now in verse 9, our stoneship, if you will, is capped with a wonderful statement that fleshes out our identity. Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Not only are we called God's chosen people, and we are called to be living stones, but we're also called to a holy priesthood. In Exodus chapter 29, when Aaron and his sons are consecrated for Israel, a sacrifice is made. And the, sacri- and the blood is poured on them to prepare them. And as a sacrifice was made to consecrate Aaron and his sons as the priests of Israel, so has a sacrifice been made to consecrate us, the church, into a holy priesthood. We too have been washed, washed in the blood of Christ. We've been consecrated as holy priests in his church no one who is in Christ is excluded from the priesthood. Jesus, our high priest, and we are the priests, doing his will, according, doing His bidding in accordance with his will. That's a pretty cool thing. We are called to be a royal priesthood. Can you imagine that? We should call each other priest every day. But a royal priesthood. And what does that mean? It means that we're to reflect the holiness of God in our lives and our actions. That we're about the king's business. There's a great story, sorry this is a commercial break, but I gotta tell you this great story. (laughs) There's a great story, there's there's a word in Greek called Kairouks and it means herald. And what the Kairouks was is that he did the king's bidding wherever he went. And so there's stories of of the herald going out on little rowboats and meet whole armadas of ships, this is an antiquity, antiquity, and saying surrender or else. This little guy in this rowboat. To kill the herald was to kill the king. It was like to declare war. This guy had great authority. That's that's kind of cool. And you think about it in the sense that we are the priests of God. We have that same authority as we go out. We have the right to preach the word, to to minister as the priests did. We are the representatives of our God where we go. And so we want to reflect that holiness of our God in our actions. Second, as the priests in the Old Testament were to intercede for the people of Israel, so should we as the body of Christ intercede for one another. As Jesus, our highest priest, intercedes in the heavenly court, so we intercede and bring in our petitions to our Lord. And third, we declare the praises of our God. We worship him and we bow down before him with great thanks for the wonderful work that he has done for us. We don't keep our praise to ourselves, for just as we were brought out from darkness into light, we take that saving light back into the darkness, whether it be in Lanesville, Gloucester, Mississippi, Germany, Bangladesh, or wherever. We go back into the darkness with that light. We don't just keep it for us. The church is not a cruise ship, but a battleship. I love that line. We're a battleship. And the enemy's on the prowl, and he delights in darkness. But as the scriptures tell us, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your heavenly Father. And finally, just as, as the priests of the Old Testament did, we too are called to offer sacrifices. But ours are a different type. Our, our, the penalty of our sin has been paid. We know that. So there's no more of a sacrificial system. But it's a different kind of sacrifice. And what's our sacrifice? It's our lives. It's us. It's that we are daily to offer ourselves up to our Lord. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your spiritual act of worship. And second, we are to serve God in all we do, as the scriptures say, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then finally, we're a holy nation. We are not only called to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, but we're also a holy nation of people belonging to God. And we could go on. One of the things that strikes me about this passage, and I'm sure you see it, but the fact that you have Jesus, Jesus as the high priest, Jesus as the temple, i'm getting this backwards and jesus is the sacrifice so are we priests so are we stones in that temple so are we the sacrifice what's our model it's jesus we have no other no other model in this world other than jesus that's who we are and so peter's using this building imagery to show how connected we are and should be connected and we're all connected because of christ as the chief cornerstone and so he wants his church to thrive together now, sometimes we do things in a clunky sort of way, don't we? We get in the way because we, even though we are perfect by the, by the blood of Christ, we're still not perfect in the way in the sense that we still are working out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. We still have a ways to go. But as the body of Christ, we want to move together. We want to work together. We want the elderly to understand the young. We want the young to understand the elderly. And then more than that, we want to see how can the young help the elderly and the elderly help the young. You you know what I'm saying? Is that that George Wood's needs are my needs. Glenn Deckert's needs are Dan's needs. Steve Steve McDonald's needs are Josiah's needs. Because we're one. We need to see it that way. We can't see ourselves as individuals. We've got to see ourselves corporately. That's who we are. And you know what the evil one hates? He hates unity. He despises it. Because he is the king of chaos, of darkness. And he's going to look for so many different ways to get in and break us apart. Even especially during the time when we're vulnerable. And when are we most vulnerable? During transition. He's going to look for ways to hit us where we're weak. Now he's not like God. He's not omniscient. But he notices where we are tempted and that's where he's going to drill us. He's going to look for those weaknesses and get in there and try to break us apart. And the thing is, we have to remember, we're not a bunch of individuals, we're one. We have to function that way. We have to seek ways in which to encourage each other to persevere in that oneness, in that unity. And yes, we may have to work through a lot of things, but that's okay. That's what we're supposed to do because we care about one thing, and that's bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's more important than that. Nothing. And so may God be pleased to do that work in these, next, in these coming months in our church, individually, as we work on our own spiritual renewal as, as disciples of Christ, but corporately as we work together. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of salvation who has brought us out of darkness into light. We thank you, Father, that we do not have to fear the evil one because your church will sustain, will stand and nothing will shift it, because this is what you have promised, and this is what you have done. And so we pray, Lord, as we, uh, help us to see how we, uh, how we can, in our own walks, see, see ways in which we can minister to each other. And Lord, if we're aware of issues in our lives, where maybe we have issues with fellow brothers and sisters, may we address those things, and not give the devil a foothold. We pray, Lord, if we have issues within the community, may we address those things, not to give the devil a foothold. We want Jesus glorified. We want Jesus. And Lord, a lot of us are in different points and periods in our lives right now facing all sorts of different challenges. And for, I, I, can't, I, I cannot help but to think that the evil one sees this on the cusp of a really great thing happening here and is trying to hit us in every way possible. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that our strength comes from you, that we would not be daunted by these things, but trust you, and help us, Lord, to seek ways to encourage one another to persevere in this faith to which you have called us. We thank you that we are a family, a family that you have linked together. In Jesus' name, amen.